This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to the Twilight Show. My name is Graham Stanley, and my special guest today is Catherine Taylor, who is a full-time teacher and secondary subject leader and Ed D. Candidate at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society in the UK. Among other things, we'll be talking about school cultures and sticky CPD. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to The Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham, speaking to you live from Mexico City. On today's show, as I said, I'll be talking to Catherine Taylor, who joined us at the end of last week's show. I'll be talking to Catherine about a number of things, including school cultures and sticky CPD, or continuing professional development, which is the subject of her research. Last week, we talked briefly about the relationship between teaching and research, and that's definitely something I'd like to talk about to, to Catherine about today as well. In addition, Catherine is also going to be hosting her very own show on Teachers Talk Radio, so I'll also be asking her about what she's planned for that. Remember, if you're listening in live and would like to join us live, either to post questions in the chat for Catherine to answer, or if you want to call in and speak to us, then please download the Podbean app, visit ttradio.org, and click on Listen Live on the homepage. This should take you directly into the show, there you can post comments and ask questions during the conversation. And once I've spoken to Catherine, I'll open up to any of you who want to call in. You can call in by pressing the icon at the top of the screen on your phone's app. Click this and I'll be able to connect you. That sounds complicated. It really isn't. Um, give it a go. Come and, come and speak to us. I'll be talking to Catherine right after the Teachers Talk radio news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. In union news, Daniel Kabede has been elected leader of the National Education Union. The union is the largest teachers' union and has been at the forefront of industrial action over teachers' pay in recent months. Mr Kabede said in a statement, after taking 69% of the vote to win the election, I am honoured to have been elected as General Secretary. I would like to thank everyone who has supported and campaigned for me. He went on to talk about the need for fundamental change in education and that this included an end to real terms pay cuts, an end to massive overwork of staff, the end of punitive Ofsteds and an increase in school funding. He also thanked current Joint General Secretaries Kevin Courtney and Dr Mary Bowstead for their inspiring leadership over the last six years. They will step down at the end of August. 
The BBC reports that, according to a leaked government document, almost a quarter of teachers in England are working 12-hour days, with around 60% of teachers saying they were doing 60 hours a week or more. The research by the Department for Education was carried out during spring 2022, but the findings have not been officially made public. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has said that a new task force will be created to help reduce teachers' workload by an average of five hours per week. The leak comes as teaching unions consult members in England on a new pay offer, which includes the promise to reduce workload. The leaked document, marked confidential and given the title Working Lives of Teachers and Leaders, was produced by the DFE to examine issues around teacher supply, recruitment and retention. More than 11,000 teachers and leaders across primary and secondary were questioned. The report found one in four teachers were considering leaving the state sector within the next 12 months. Workload was the key factor in this decision. Three quarters said they spent too much time on paperwork. Two thirds of leaders said they spent too much time responding to government policy changes. One in five said they had low satisfaction in their working life whilst almost a half rated their anxiety levels as high. Almost three quarters of teachers described their workload as unacceptable. Dr Mary Bowstead of the NEU accused ministers of withholding important information from the peer review body, although the government denied this. A spokesperson for the government insisted that the recent pay offer of 4.3% plus a £1,000 one-off payment was fair and reasonable. The Department for Education has released an update on the .gov.uk website focusing on the review of the way relationships, sex and health education is delivered. The update comes after a number of stories across media outlets prompted concern and outrage from some quarters and claims that hysteria is being whipped up by right-wing agitators from others. RSHE education has been compulsory for pupils in primary schools since September 2020. In secondary schools, relationships and sex education must be taught. The review, which will be completed by an expert panel, will focus on how to ensure pupils have access to age-appropriate information and how to place protection from pupils being introduced to things that they are too young to understand properly. The panel will also consider how age ratings can be introduced for different parts of the curriculum. The review will be completed before the end of 2023. As we approach Easter, the debate about supporting families who receive support through free school meals should be supported in holiday times and it's opened up again. The big issue raises concerns that despite the cost of living crisis, many families will go without support until term begins again. In what it calls a postcode lottery for support, many families will miss out as current funding largely depends on where you live. In England, the government is not directly funding free school meals over the Easter break, but support may be available if local councils decide to provide meals or vouchers. Many councils are relying on the holiday activities and food programme to support low-income families. In Scotland, some councils are offering free school meals payments to low-income families, but universal free school meals for children in primary one to five will not be available. There is some support available, but it varies by council, as does the amount of support being offered. The Welsh Government has made free meals available throughout the holiday period. The Government in Wales announced that £9 million has been provided to support eligible pupils with a free meal up to the end of May half term, including all bank holidays. 
The support will take the form of meal vouchers, money or packed lunches. In Northern Ireland, no free school meal provision is available. The previous holiday hunger payments of £27 per fortnight ceased on April 1st. A Department for Education spokesperson said it was because additional ring-fenced funding had ended. But campaigners focusing on food poverty said the decision was abhorrent. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. And welcome back, um, everyone, and welcome especially to my special guest, Catherine Taylor. Catherine, Hello. are you there? Hello. How are you? Can you hear me? Hello. Yes, Hello. loud and loud and clear. How are you today? Fantastic. Good. Thank you. Thank you. It's the first day of the Easter holidays, and of so course. there's a, the usual amount of uh, <laughs> trying to catch up with myself, but uh, it's all good. Thank you. Excellent. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for agreeing to join me today. Um, I talked a little bit about what your current role is uh, right at the start. Um, you're a full-time teacher and secondary subject leader, and you're also conducting research. That's right. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what a typical day or week is like uh, uh, for you as far as teaching and, and research is concerned? Yes, yeah, so um, I do work full time um, as a subject lead for religion, philosophy and ethics um, in, in a school, secondary school. And um, so obviously I spend a lot of time in the classroom. I teach a full time table um, and I think that's really important to kind of get across because um, I know a lot of people criticise um, or, or worry about research um, researchers who haven't mm -hmm. set foot inside a classroom for a number of years but I'm, I'm right in there doing that every day um, I teach across all key stages in secondary so I would have you know four classes of year sevens three classes of year eights four classes of year nines and all the way up to year 13 um, including GCSE and A-level groups so I find that really enriching I really enjoy that aspect of the work um, and have I have a really good time with the students students in our school are absolutely brilliant um, so I really enjoy that teacher student interaction um, but at the same time I'm absolutely fascinated by uh, what's going on in research um, in education and I've always been I mean I imagine I'm probably a, a type of person I'm quite an entrepreneurial person I'm quite um, an early adopter type person when it comes to technology as well so I've always had a view of looking to see what the next challenge is and I've never been satisfied to just um, you know get good at the day job and then keep keep coasting with it um, so yeah my, my week can look um, you know I can I can go from teaching I don't know, abortion and euthanasia through to, um, you know, Hindu gods and goddesses, you know, wow. on, <laughs> within, <laughs> you know, two hours. Um, so, yeah, it's huge variety and, and I do love it. Um, another thing that I do is I also deliver on um, some of the, the ECF um, framework um, so I go out and and deliver sessions and facilitate sessions for um, for that and also the uh, the MPQ uh, leading teacher development so I really enjoy the opportunity to go and talk to um, 
beginning and um, early career teachers and also more mature teachers who are looking for their next challenge as well. It really helps me to kind of um, appreciate people's perspectives because it's very easy to think everyone thinks like you and, and they, they don't. <laughs> no, absolutely true. Oh, wow. Uh, it sounds like you'll keep yourself very, very busy indeed. And uh, what will you be doing during the Easter break? Will you be trying to catch up on the research, I guess? Yeah, so I'm I'm about, I think, probably about 14 months off submitting my, my doctorate. Mm -hmm. And so I've got um, a number of qualitative interviews that I've gathered over the last few months, which I need to transcribe and evaluate and analyse. So I'm going to be doing a little bit of that and uh, reviewing what people have said to me. And I've got uh, got some data which has come in from different schools that I've been working with on my survey instrument. So I'll be looking at that. Um, one of the issues I have with my survey instrument, which we'll talk a bit more about later, is that it's very long and uh, people mm -hmm. who work in education are very time poor. So I need to give some serious thought about how to, how to kind of make it a bit more user-friendly. So I'm going to be thinking about um, that side of things uh i'm also going to be spending time with with my little boy and getting out to the natural history museum to see the very large dinosaur that they've just got there and and those kind of fun things as well oh wow is that an is that a new dinosaur i, I know there oh, was yes. a yeah oh i did i've missed it's, out on that i uh... yeah it's just uh i can't remember what it's called but it's a a, a new one that's just been um installed there new exhibit so we're going to go and see that one <laughs> wow is your little boy dinosaur crazy i imagine he is yes i think was it they say you know you know most about dinosaurs when you're you know a small child and then again <laughs> when you do your masters in paleontology those are the two peak dinosaur knowledge times <laughs> and then and then in between when you're a parent i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely okay well going back to your research catherine i'd love to um hear more about that i think um especially your folk the focus of your research which is i believe school cultures and sticky cpd yeah, yeah what, it, so, what was it so, that attract you due to to that okay so it's a bit of a long journey that kind of begins almost before i i started teaching before i trained mm -hmm. as a teacher i was involved in um in my my dad's uh, educational enterprise which was to do with video conferencing in the classroom and we're talking oh, about wow. in you know the year 2000 so a long time before all of this technology was mainstream and uh, he was a deputy head uh, and he was invited and sponsored by Mars I believe to go off and um, to go teach lessons back to, to, the, to the classroom from all around the world so he was heavily involved in that and um, I got involved in delivering some video conference sessions to, to just storytelling really. Um, and I used to sort of dress up as various historical figures and answer questions from primary school teachers and read Wonderful. stories over, over, the, over the internet. And this is, as I say, sort of early 2000s. Um, so I've always been in that environment and um, really loved being experimental with teaching and learning and, and at that time I was doing my open university degree so I found my love for philosophy religion and ethics and decided to go and train as a teacher so I thought well we you know this is a really great opportunity to do this kind of thing live so 
I got into my PGCE and as soon as I got into my school, I was looking at the workload. And of course, if you've ever, if you imagine being a, a PRE teacher, you're looking at teaching nearly everyone in the school mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you, you see everyone once a week or whatever, or, or once a fortnight sometimes. And the workload of marking all of their books and their homework is, is just huge. And so I was looking at technology about how can I sort of do quizzes and get information back in a much more efficient way that doesn't take up so much of my time so I can concentrate on my planning. And so I just, as I was by this time doing my master's, having passed my PGCE, I was then thinking, right, well, I love technology. I love trying to, you know, manage my workload through smart technology. I could not understand why my colleagues were resistant to it. And so this theme kept coming back throughout my career. You know, why are some people so resistant to things that I consider to be a no brainer? Mm. And as I sort of went through this, I, I began to sort of understand different people's perspectives and why it is that people um, become quite, can become quite set in their ways. Don't be, I don't want to be unfair to teachers at all. It's a highly pressured environment and people completely understandably need to just get through their workload and adding new things in can be quite daunting. Um, so I got to a point where I really wanted to understand why digital learning CPD was not as effective as it might be. So I, I, I signed up to UCL to do my ED with an intention of understanding the barriers to digital learning in the classroom. But as I got into it, the more I realised this isn't just about digital learning, this is actually a much bigger question about mm-hmm. teacher professionalism and professional learning in general. And so my interest kind of shifted away from the specific area of ed, ed, um, ed tech and started to look at, well, what are the mechanisms that are involved in teacher learning? Um, and from there, I started to realise that the language involved in teacher learning is just really not used in a uniform way. And people Mm -hmm. understand, for example, um, you know, I started to notice through my reason, through my my reading that there seem to be sort of eight themes that when they are high, when they're highly in evidence and highly perceived in an organisation, the learning, the professional learning is more likely to be successful. So there's a lot of research out there that says we wanted to try this innovation, this pedagogical innovation, and we had high hopes for it, and we tried it in our school and it didn't work, and we don't really know why. And then there's another sort of area of research that said we tried this innovation and it worked really well in this particular department, and we don't really understand why. And I thought, well, there's clearly something going on with with the culture so what were the features of the cultures in those departments where these pockets of really effective sticky professional learning what was going on in those places and so I've I looked into it and essentially it's things like agency efficacy logistical arrangements collegiality um, the the amount of trust that people perceive 
the resilience that they have, uh, their ability to be reflective and the amount of professional autonomy that they perceive. So I thought, okay, right, let's find out how you get those things. Um, But the more I read, the more I realised that even those words are not being used the same. And uh, so, for example, if you were thinking about agency, it could be that um, it's about goal-orientated plans and how people feel like they can put a plan into action. Um, It could be very much more reactive, that people find themselves in situations and respond to them. It could be about how they are in terms of their problem-solving aptitudes and noticing problems and being creative about how to solve problems. Um, It can be um, people just need to be in a in an environment where they're allowed to flourish and feel they've got psychological safety. And, you know, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, an agency as well can be people use their agency to resist and uh, form cliques and uh, make change very difficult. And so what I did is I mapped all of these different ways of using this language mm-hmm. into a very long um, questionnaire which essentially every time I found a new way of using this language, I reviewed hundreds of academic papers and um, sorted them by the use of this language. I I created a question for each individual use of the language, let's say agency, efficacy and so on. Then Mm. I got some fabulous teachers in my school to take the survey which was probably mm-hmm. horrendous because it was huge. <laughs> and then I used a statistical analysis um, technique to find similarities and commonalities between the answers that my, my colleagues had given me, which enabled me to group by family resemblance, if you like, yeah. pockets of different understanding of these terms. And then I spent some time conceptualizing those sort of very theoretically and then I redeveloped those conceptual theorizations back into a much more hopefully user-friendly and coherent set of questions which is what Mm -hmm. I'm now at the stage of piloting to see um, see what the user experience is like and and how engaging with those questions helps teachers to kind of become more research enlightened i suppose because they Mm. kind of get all of this synthesized research into you know hopefully a 10 minute questionnaire and then the the results which come back to the organization and they can go okay so we've got quite a lot of people who um you know think as problem solvers or who think as um, they quite like the chain of command they feel more secure when they know what's expected of them or whatever it might be. And then that school can, for themselves, decide what their next strategic steps would be. Wow. That sounds, uh, <laughs> that sounds fascinating. I can, uh, I can see how you can get lost in that type of uh, research. I've, if I go back to the term sticky CPD, yeah, I was wondering, sticky CPD, is that CPD that actually means that teachers really want to do it or is it cpt that is effective or is it a bit of both or or is it Um, something else i would say 
and you know it's a non-technical word i have to say sticky is a non-technical <laughs> word but um i i would have to say that i make a distinction between professional development activities and teacher professional learning right so the activity is is like um the, the thing that's carried out, the speaker that you get in, the the technology that is being shown to you, how to use it or whatever it mm-hmm. is. So that's the course you go on, the webinar you watch, whatever it might be. I think that professional learning is the bit where the stickiness comes in. So for me, professional learning is to do with the, the change in knowledge attitudes and practices which becomes embedded and sustained over time Mm -hmm. so when i think about um sort of sticky professional learning i think it's to do with what happens back in the classroom when the teacher adapts and reflects on their practice and um adopts deliberately at first but then sort of it becomes more um more natural and more part of their way of teaching. And I'll give an example Mm -hmm. of of what I mean by that. We've done a lot of um, things as many teachers have done on retrieval practice and and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And I really wanted to tighten up my starters in my lessons. So I thought, well, I'm going to have a go at retrieval practice. And it began with me putting a thing on the board that said last last lesson last term last year or whatever and a question about those things and yeah I thought well, I'm going to do that for all of my year 10 lessons and that was me taking the professional development and putting it into my practice but it wasn't really sticky yet because all I'd done is sort of airdrop it in and give it a go as I became more um more well, as I, as I started to see the dividends of this and the results of this, then I started to think, okay, I started to be more selective and careful mm-hmm. about the questions that I put into those activities. And now, you know, I it really is part of my practice and almost it feels not unprofessional, but it feels strange and like something's missing if I don't have a starter, which has carefully chosen, deliberately placed questions which link back to past learning and include it into pro- into current and future learning. So that's now sticky because I'm doing it. I feel it's almost I've done a bad job if I haven't done it. And it's totally embedded into what I consider to be a good lesson. So it's that kind of things where something goes right. from the presentation to actually the teachers just, you know, what did I do before I do this kind of uh, situation? Oh, fascinating. That's really clear. Uh, it makes it very um, more evident what, what, what the term sticky is then. So in that case, you got the uh, information about retrieval practice from um reading about it from a webinar from some kind of course was it and then you um, decided to take it on board because of that was that the yeah i mean link? it was this whole whole school focus we had some mm-hmm. you know excellent colleagues in school who were 
sort of driving it forward. We had some really good presentations um, about what it is. And of course, I've done my own reading around that as well, um, looking at Rosenshine. And I know that that's something that's very popular in, in English schools for many people at mm. the moment. So, you know, there was a theoretical basis and then there was modelling and then there was my trying it out and then there was my seeing the benefits but thinking how can I improve it and you know I think there's a difference and a very important difference between this kind of embedded stickiness of whatever it is you've decided to embed in your own context and mm -hmm. what often happens and you know I mean I'm very happy to be corrected on this it could be that it doesn't mm -hmm. often happen and everybody's um very researched engaged but i think there can be cases where people um do the thing they've been asked to do because they've been told to or because they think right. someone will come and look and you get this kind of very superficial implementation where people do it because oh we're all doing a starter now with this slide and everyone's got to put this you know logo on our first powerpoint slide and every, you know someone will come and they'll tell you off if you haven't done it um you know we're all going to be, mm -hmm. you know in trouble with our department review if we aren't doing this you know if that's right. the only reason something's being done then that's i mean i, I think Doing it is better than not doing it, but it's not really deeply ingrained and embedded. So what I what I sort of think is, well, how do you get to a situation where teachers are research engaged enough to be able to say, right, this is worth a try and then reflective enough to go, well, did it work or didn't it? And how can I adapt it for my context? Um, you know, we can't just airdrop these things in. There's no kind of best practice that somehow right. is it's like the panacea and the, the golden silver bullet or whatever it's it has to be a combination of the the, the nugget of the active ingredient as, as i think some some scholars call it what is it that we are trying to do and then how mm -hmm. does it work for me and how is it sustained for me rather than gimmicky and a fad and, and all of that stuff that really can kind of limit the the benefits of some of these you know there's you, you can get poorly yeah. applied or poorly understood or poorly implemented um uh different pedagogies that that are done only because people believe they should do them but it's very superficial right and that that brings me on i think to what I imagine is the other part of related to your research is the school culture. So mm -hmm. the, what is about a type of, is there a type of school culture or uh, that would be ideal for this type of generating this type of environment or, or good practice as far as sticky professional learning is concerned and, and how would school leaders or indeed teachers move towards achieving that environment or um, culture yeah i mean this kind of comes it can get a little bit philosophical and, and perhaps political at this point because there's i think a lot of it comes down to how teachers understand <laughs> professionalism and what it means to be a professional in sort of in the classroom and as a teacher and as an educator and yeah. 
we we all operate in in England at least and many other places this sort of model and paradigm goes on where we are within what we might call a managerial context of professionalism and by that mm-hmm. I mean that things are standardized and available for measurement and um you know people like the teacher standards in England for example people say they are very much measuring quite a narrow set of proxies um like results or or whatever it is which puts people puts teachers in a kind of box ticky frame of mind we are mm-hmm. we are told that you must do this and Ofsted will be looking for it and you know rightly or wrongly we're all trying to jump through the hoops and and evidence what we're doing and this results in a lot of performativity which is things that we do um to make explicit that we are doing them rather than the actual things that we are supposed to be doing so we all operate in in england at least in this context because that is the framework that that we have and this has been something that's implemented implemented um since sort of the late 80s with the educational Mm -hmm. reform act so that's the context that we that's the sort of the the landscape and the framework now unfortunately for that model if you like teachers themselves are quite well, they fall into I'd say two broad camps there'd be traditional professionalism where ex- essentially experience and um, length of service in the classroom is where your professionalism comes from so you are long it long um long in your experience you've seen it all perhaps you've got a strong view about what works and what's been successful for you over your teaching practice and because you are the the, you have that developed long-term expertise then you should be able to make your own professional judgments so there's that kind of group of people very broadly speaking and then there's the the counter to that which is this idea of demographic Uh, excuse Mm -hmm. me democratic professionalism which basically it it's not democratic in the sense that every all the teachers in school take a vote on what to do but it's democratic Mm -hmm. in the sense that it's very open um it's trying to make practice and rationales for practice very explicit and clear and making um the teacher essentially somebody who prides themselves in being extrinsically motivated extrinsically research informed um and very much sorry i'll requalify that i mean intrinsically motivated to be an extrinsically yeah. research informed so right. we, we we believe that when we are research engaged that is a, a an expression of professionalism when we try things out that's an expression of professionalism and when we um reflect on it and adapt our practice that's an expression of professionalism and the more open and explicit we can make that professional behavior the more professional we are and that's that's where i would put myself i consider myself to be a democratic professional um so within a culture you may find that there is a mixture of people and they they may you know quite dynamic as well so there'll be people who are very experienced and believe the experience carries the day and there will be people who are very dynamic and research engaged and believe that that carries the day and it all sits under this macro culture of managerialism where we're all trying to 
demonstrate what we're doing to an external eye. And so in terms of the school culture, that's kind of where we're at. And my contention is that if members of that teaching community are democratic in their attitude mm-hmm. towards their professionalism, then there is a much higher chance that the CPD is going to be sticky. And so, so it's a case of an organisation having having the attitude, perhaps the courage, because, you know, Ofsted World is very scary and, you know, the box mm-hmm. ticking is very scary and people like the security and it has real, real world implications for their funding as well. So let's not forget, yeah. you know, all of these proxies make a difference to, to financial and reputational and all of these things. So I think that, you know, to create the culture of democratic professionalism can be a bit of a scary thing to do and so I guess what I'm trying to do is to find a mechanism by which school leaders can get the lay of the land and Mm -hmm. think about how things are in their organisation and then start to think about what they might do about it for example you know, sending people off to conferences or um, getting a speaker in who's inspirational or, um, you know, saying in this school we set aside every Tuesday afternoon to reflect on our practice or whatever they feel it might be to move towards this more democratic, um, open and less individualised and closed off idea of professionalism because that's, I think, where the growth happens. Right. That that sounds like quite a compli- complicated thing to, to to make happen. Do you think that's yeah. the case? I do. I do. I think, you know, there's always a tension between the ambitious mm-hmm. plans um, and the reality on the ground. And, you know, I guess what I'm doing with my research is to almost mainline a very large body of research into a user-friendly instrument so that right. people can have that that way of engaging in this research. Because, of course, if you are very busy and very time poor and very mindful of the performance proxies that you're trying to, or the hoops that you've got to jump through, you know, to be able to really engage with, with the literature is, is going to be a challenge for you, um, for teachers and professionals at all levels. So... My research does not give the answer to how this can be done. That's probably something for me to do next, you know, post-doctorate or to to do in collaboration with other bodies and people later on. All I'm doing now, all I'm doing now, is to say, here, here is the landscape and here is a way of thinking about this, which you can have access to in an efficient way and you can begin to start that conversation that will help you orientate yourself as an organization and as people within that organization to decide what works for you on your sort of next steps of your journey towards improving you know educational outcomes for for all right okay wow and speaking about research 
and the connection with teaching. Uh, we we ha we started last week a, a kind of conversation about that connection between research and teaching, and I think you mentioned it definitely at the beginning of our conversation today. That you know you feel very strongly about researchers who aren't who are researching teaching who are not actually in the classroom or not connected to the classroom, and you very much. I think feel very passionately that if you're going to be researching teaching, you should be teaching. Is that the case? Um, I'm not sure that that's my belief entirely. I mm -hmm. know that it's a belief that is quite widely held and I do understand why it's widely held because stressed people are defensive. And yeah. if you are being told you know, I mean, I had a wonderful story, which I hope I hope the person involved won't mind me sharing. I won't name anybody, but mm -hmm. I heard a wonderful story about um, a consultant that came into a school to, to, and said, right, when you do your PowerPoint slides, you must put the most key information up in the top left hand corner and this will solve all your problems. And, you know, <sighs> the teachers in this school were on their knees and, you know, there's there were tears, I believe, from somebody who say, you know, I can't get the kids to sit down. You know, this is such a, a, you know, an insultingly useless piece of information. I'm sure it was evidence based, but it was those teachers were not open to that intervention at that time. No. Um, and, you know, I mean, I can I don't know. I once went to a talk by a very. Um, very famous keynote speaker who I won't name, yeah. but they were talking about um, the ideas about the small changes you can make that make big impacts. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to this and I was getting so cross because I just thought, come to my work, look at my context, look at the time and the resources that I have available to me. And then, you know, don't tell me about, you know, the cycling team skies and their, their, <laughs> having a different pillow in every travel lodge they go to you know this is so far away from the reality of my day and I was very much hostile in my kind of reception to to that message and I think that I'm not alone in that if someone comes in and says if you do this all your problems will be solved it's almost yeah. insulting and you become quite defensive and you 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 know when people feel like they are being attacked in that in that way about their professional choices there's only really one place to go and that's to resist your cpd you know yeah. so that that happens and i think it's unfortunate because i don't necessarily think that outside speakers and people who don't teach have you know i think there's really excellent things we can learn i don't mm -hmm. necessarily believe that an educational consultant is not worthwhile if they are no longer teaching so i just want to yeah. make that clear sure. however i do know that teachers up against it can be hostile to people that they perceive do not do the daily grind and i understand why and yeah. so my vision really for sort of developing this kind of democratic professional attitude as a way of being a teacher is is to sort of say well why can't we have a professional pathway built in to the education system where people are able to 
undertake research skills. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know how complex it was to make a survey that's kind of validated and <laughs> reliable until I tried to make one. So it's about giving teachers the the research skills that means that when they evaluate their practice they do so in an effective way and the results of that are fruitful and meaningful Mm -hmm. um so we should have research skills as a professional part of you know being a teacher we should also have opportunities for undertaking research and networking and um writing academic you know reading writing academic papers and what have you and getting involved with universities and and people carrying out the research as part of your job and I think my complaint is well my complaint very definitely is anybody who wants to stick their head above the parapet does it in their own time and when people are already extremely busy and extremely Mm -hmm. pressurized and have their own lives and you know we've got for example very you know large female um, workforce certainly Mm -hmm. men who have issues as well but let's say for example we might have a very large contingent of people with young children perhaps Mm -hmm. menopausal whatever it might be Um, never mind all of the other sort of generational things where you've got elderly parents and young children and all of that If you then say you've got to work, you know, you're 40 teaching 40 periods across a fortnight and then go and read some academic journals as well. It's not really a realistic thing to ask a person to do. No, it's really hard. I've been looking and, and studying, researching started in 2018 and it's tough. It's hard. And I just think that unless there is a, a professional pathway within mainstream education that allows teachers to have less contact time in order to engage in these kind of research practices and uh, evidence-based reading and networking, then nothing's really going to change because mm. they simply don't have the capacity to do it. Um, so I would love to see roles which emerge at you know a a professional studies sort of level so that people can have the breathing space to be able to to really deeply engage in their professional learning and this will would I think lead to the kind of professionalism that I'm talking about because it's all very well to say it but it's just no no real breathing space for it to occur and I think that's that's the biggest issue Right. Yeah, no, I can see that. So I think, you know, what I said before about research, researchers having a foot in the classroom and being teachers, um, perhaps I didn't kind of go into as much detail as perhaps I, w- I would have liked to have done. I think it's either that or at least they're very in touch with the day-to-day context of, of the teachers that they're talking to, these experts. You know, if they talk to teachers, if they're aware of what's happening, I think that's the very sort of least that they should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've all seen and sat through these initiatives that are sort of sort of flown in 
as the the latest thing and when you've seen a few of those it is easy to become cynical and you know mm -hmm. when you are you know up against it and feeling some sort of pressures and burnout and things like that which a lot of people do you know the the last refuge of the you know dis, disempowered is resistance yeah of, you know we, we're not ready to learn and i think we don't you know it's very easy to think about the barriers to learning that that children encounter you know if you are stressed and your mind's on other things and feeling pressured and you know we we recognize it in children all the time you know they, yeah. they're not ready to learn because of various contextual things that are going on but we we don't seem to kind of have the same consideration for our teachers mm. um you know and i don't i don't say this because i think that things are being done with bad will no. But I think it is the case psychologically that if you are not in a position of psychological safety, if you are feeling very much that, you know, people are saying to you, try this new thing, but don't get caught out trying it and it going wrong, you know, <laughs> and people are, are going to shut down as learners just in the same way that yeah. if you if you constantly criticise a child, they're going to eventually give up on the enterprise of their learning i think adults are very similar psychologically and we don't necessarily we kind of assume that that that's not the case but it i think it is oh definitely i i completely agree i think i think one of the things you mentioned there is so important for me as well if if a teacher is com is constantly stressed during the working their working day as well is that the the learners will pick up on that as well won't they so then they will not be in a they'll be in a learners will definitely be in a more receptive place if the teacher is relaxed and enjoying what they're doing and um during the uh, during the classroom which i think it's a very makes it very difficult for a teacher who does have all of these pressures um on them and yet knows because teachers know that they have to put on this sort of smiley face almost in the actual classroom yeah yeah and it's you know i i i take the attitude you know i remember when i first started teaching and you kind of felt like you couldn't show any sign of weakness and the whole you know don't smile before christmas nonsense and all the rest of it and i just you know now i'm just if i'm teaching my class i quite i I would be very open and explicit about, you know, we're going to try this. What did you think? You know, how did it go? And it's just, and I, I let them know that I'm also a student and that I'm also learning. And, you know, it's very much, we're going to try this and we're going to see how it, how it gets on. And I'll give them reasons as to why thing, you know, I might say something mm -hmm. about, you know, what we know about working memory or, or something like that. So I think, being able to kind of relax and lean into yourself as a learner in a really explicit way makes it okay to try and fail. <laughs> do you know what I mean? As long as you then right. do something next. Um, but I think it can be quite a vulnerable place and a, a scary place for some teachers, especially if your authority comes from your self-perception of Mm -hmm. it it comes from your experience um 
you know, and I, there, I am kind of in a way making caricatures because I think most people operate within a spectrum of these things. Yeah. But, um, you know, we can, we can imagine sort of the teachers perhaps from, from the nineties and two thousands where the frameworks were coming in, especially in you know, 2010 to 2019, when it was very much, you know, performative and, you know, there was still grading individual lessons on your observations and things like that. It was very high stakes, very stressful. Um, you know, people felt that they couldn't try stuff and make mistakes and adapt. It had to be done and ready and, you know, all, all the rest of it. And I just think that's led so many teachers to... You know, I think I think we're still living with the legacy of that kind of attitude, mm-hmm. even though I think things have changed and moved on. Your, your professional identity, you know, people are, are still in in a state of sort of practice shock in a way that that leaves them closed down um, to to really embracing what's new in teaching. Yeah, I I think you you you've got a good point there. I think. It's also, for me, I think it's very important that teachers are open to change and that they're open to learning and they don't get sort of stuck in a, uh, in a rut, if you like, to do the same things. And part of that is actually being aware of things that are happening in the research that are things that are actually new and that could actually help them as well on the day-to-day basis if they just had the time to actually uh, to find out about them, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the biggest thing that's sort of changed since, um, you know, in the last, let's say, 10 years, probably not even that, but there's been a, a couple of a couple of things that now are known about uh, cognitive science and the mm-hmm. way that memory works that simply weren't like, on. They simply weren't in the picture when certainly I trained, I trained about 15 years ago and I'm sure there were people that knew about them, but it wasn't, wasn't par for the course. Whereas now you've got teachers coming through and there'll be an awful lot of emphasis on cognitive science in their, um, in their development, in their practice. And, you know, I feel quite strongly that if you are only relying on your experience to, Mm -hmm to inform your practice and maintain your authority then frankly there's a lot of stuff that's true that you don't know um and you should know because it actually makes difference now that is not to say that there is one way of doing it or that everyone Mm -hmm. should um you know it should be enforced or mandated because as i say i don't want this superficial practice where you do it because you're told to do it because someone might look but I do think it's true that we have a responsibility to upskill ourselves because there's new information out there that that is important. Yeah, I think teachers need to embrace this idea of lifelong learning for themselves as well, don't they? Yeah, and and I I don't say that as a criticism. I think mm-hmm. the conditions create the, yeah. the cultural managerial professional conditions which you know I understand why regulation and um, accountability I'm, I'm not anti-accountability but I don't necessarily think that's been done 
in a productive or helpful way. Um, I do think that, you know, we are in a system that squeezes the professionalism out. So if you are managerially minded in the professional sense, then it's all about measurement and efficiency. And teacher professionalism, particularly democratic professionalism as I see it, requires nurturing and time and conversations and all the soft stuff um, that supports the development of it. It's, it's kind of incompatible with our system. We, we say we want it, we probably intellectually want it, but we don't create the conditions structurally to get it. And then we criticise the people on the ground for not producing it. And that's that's wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not a positive thing to do and it, it won't lead to um, change, will it? No, and in fact, it would just drive people out of the profession, which is, you know, what what's happening. People just say, well, fine, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm burnt out, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I work in an organisation where, you know, people are open and, um, you know, trying new things. I don't feel the performative pressure, particularly um, myself, and I don't think my organisation... Um, is sort of built like that if anything i'd say it's probably too too loose because sometimes people need a bit of a prompt to kind of as i say get with get with the program but i'm very lucky and i know that there are schools out there where the the performativity is just off the scale and everybody is squeezed and everybody and you get this very toxic um cultures where where people feel very very distressed by it all. I mean, before I did my doctorate, before I started doing it, I was in a position where I I couldn't work out what the problem was. And I thought I either need to leave the profession or I need to do something mm -hmm. about it. And I came very close to leaving the profession. And I oh, really? don't know what I would have done instead. But then I, I thought, well, I'm going to do something positive instead. So I signed up for the doctorate. And I it's almost like the first year of it, the scales fall from your eyes and you start to understand, like, not only is this going on, you know, it's not me, but you, mm -hmm. you can come to feel as if it is you. It's not yeah. me. This is not only true and known about. This has been known and written about for over 20 years, over 30 years. And people are within a system, they, they are... People can come to feel like they are the problem and they are worthy of criticism, although no one's exempt from criticism. But uh, people people internalise it all and think it's them. It's not. It's it's a it's a system that we are all operating within that cuts you off from other people and criticises you for trying new stuff, even though it demands that you try new stuff. And this is not a psychological. It's not psychologically safe space. And it, it really, in my view, gets, you know, reduces opportunities for, for genuine professional development where, where, as I've described. So, yeah, that's what I think about that. <laughs> wow. Um, I have, we have someone in the uh, studio that um, would like to join us to talk to us, um, Rose. Yeah. Um, just trying to bring her in now. 
while um while I'm waiting for there's some problem I think with the invitation to be a speaker Rose perhaps if you could refresh your browser that might help because I think I am inviting you but um it's not working and there's a comment from Catherine there's a comment from Chris Fry in Barcelona who says teachers who don't want to be changed or developed may well want to change and develop in ways that they choose the problem still remains that there may be some teachers don't want to change or develop. Is it ethical to insist that all teachers show signs of continuous professional growth? Um, so this is like bite, bite the bullet time. I do think that if you are, in my view, I do think that professionalism entails professional growth. I think if you're not, then you're not. Um, so I do that is that is my view but I do think that work should be done to find the interests of people mm-hmm. and to encourage them to explore those interests and and so on so I, I don't think I'd ever write someone off as being unprofessional because they don't engage in their learning I'd rather be asking questions about um you know what is their vision? What are their values? What do they want to learn about? And then I'd be right. trying to kind of bring people along. And I mean, Fred Corthagen, uh, I don't know if you've read anything by him, but 2017, he, he has a he, he has a really good um, paper about this. And he basically says that people who we might describe as being extremely resistant to their professional learning are essentially in long-term, what he calls practice shock, which right. requires a lot of coaching and, uh, you know, it's almost like a professional shutdown and coaching and very careful, sympathetic encouragement is needed to unpick the, the blocks that they've kind of put down just to ensure their survival on a day-to-day basis without, you know, having a breakdown. So I think... Right. I wouldn't want, I would see it as a symptom of burnout rather than a kind mm-hmm. of a problematic person. I think it's a problematic system. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think I agree with you there. So we have Rose um, in the studio now and ready to speak, I hope. Rose, Hi, Rose. are you are you there? Yes, I'm Can you hear us? Yes, I'm here. Hello, Rose. Can you hear me? Thank you for, yes, we can. Well, thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself and then. Uh, Please feel free to no, I'm add just, to the conversation. I'm just and basically, you see, what I think now is that when we went to school, we used to learn the basics. So at least when you come out, you could spell, you could basic, you could add up, you know, you could join mm-hmm. the writing together. And we used to spend time, you know, kids today, some of them can't even join the writing up. You know, that was a natural thing we were taught. And I don't know where it's gone wrong because somehow I think that old-fashioned teaching, where at least the basics were taught, is somehow better than the teaching of today. Okay, that's interesting. I, I don't know if you want to respond, Catherine, but Rose, could you just give us a little bit of background? Are you actually a teacher? Were you a teacher? I think you said you were a teacher. No, no, I'm not a teacher. I'm, I'm just saying that I think sometimes this okay. progressive teaching 
is I, I find, and people say of our generation when we used to mm -hmm. like be taught the basic four basic maths and that, right. and you hear a lot of people saying they're coming out of school and they can't even do the basics. And yeah. I can't understand that. Where's the teaching gone wrong where they can't do the but, basics? But is that is that something you've actually seen yourself or is that something that you've heard people say? I've seen people try to write stuff and they're writing just big sort of letters, but they don't join it together. Right. I've seen that quite often, um, which mine was natural. You used to learn how to. I remember days where you used to do the things, you used to join the O's, you used to join the. I think somehow this, where we do, they used to sit around the table and do this progressive stuff. I think some of the old fashioned teaching is better than some of this progressive stuff. And I do think as well that sometimes this pressure that they put on teachers and to mm -hmm. school kids to basically <coughs> keep passing the levels, you know, oh, you've got to do, you've got to do a test for this, you've got to do a test for that, the teachers have got to do a test, you know, it's all to me wrong it's sort of putting the pressure on all the time um, yeah. and sometimes uh, kids have real problems it's not that sometimes they um just can't pick up the same i had difficulty it's not that i was brown yeah. or couldn't learn and i was and basically the information once i got it through my head wasn't there but yeah it took me a bit to pick it up. That's the difference between somebody who's quick with the intelligence, like my friend who is very intelligent, and mm -hmm. and somebody who struggles. I haven't got, um, oh, where they have that other thing. But it just means that the demands of what a school is doing makes some people feel like, oh, they're not learning quick enough and despondent yeah. of school basically and, so i'm i'm gonna ask catherine what what do you what do you think about um, what Kath, uh, rose is saying here um is that yeah. your experience uh, i think that you know if we go back to the 80s when the education reform act was brought in whether you like the political reasons and whatever, I think it was needed. And I do think that, um, you know, there will be a lot of people who did leave school without what you, what you call the basics. Um, it probably wasn't as explicitly clear. Um, but I think since there have been these sort of frameworks since the 1980s that things have I mean we can measure that that standards have improved um, I don't always agree with the the phasing of how it's been implemented but I do think that things are better than they were 40 odd years ago than they are now um, I think possibly what's What's different is that we do now have a, a greater understanding about sort of cognitive science and conditions such as dyslexia and, you know, the kind of children that might have once been written off as naughty or disruptive or whatever. We, we do now understand more of the, the neuroscience around 
those kinds of behaviors and presentations and I think you know you can either continue with a hard line on these things and end up with you know shut down people and unconfident people and you know people who see themselves as failures if they can't do the basics or you can understand how best to support those and I I I do speak from a kind of personal place here my son is very dyslexic and you know we we know that he is better able to access the curriculum Mm -hmm. when his font is presented to him on 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 the whiteboard or whatever in something like Arial as opposed to um even Times New Roman can be a bit fussy for him. His reading speed measurably increases. And so I don't know that to not make these small and very easy adaptations takes, you know, is is worthless or that sort of old fashioned ways would have, you know, back in the day, he probably just would have been entirely excluded. Mm. Um, so I, I, do, I do worry about sort of the traditional view as somehow being better but do you think I find that like now I don't know we've got a lot of migrants coming in especially around our around where we live where I live I mean it's full of every kind of nationality you can think of and with the language that goes with it um but so don't you just that now being a teacher like do you find now that becomes a bit of a hindrance? Because you've got kids coming in who don't even understand English. Yeah, I guess, I mean, certainly that raises challenges, but I'm not sure that those challenges would be met by traditional teaching methods. So I think we have to be able to react and adapt and, and meet the needs of our learners um, in in ways which we which would not have been available, you know, 40 years ago. Well, do you have to separate them then and then learn English? Because their parents don't talk English to them, because I know, I hear them all the time. So surely you have, must have to sort of separate them or have some, you know, because isn't it holding the English kids back? They're basically, if they can't even understand English. I think, I think a good teacher in a good school has, you know, well-resourced school, which that's a separate question. I'm not sure the resourcing is there. But, you know, there would be small group work, there would be interventions that are going on and they ought to, they ought to be, you know, fully funded and supported and that's, that's a different question. But I think that, you know, as teachers, we do need to be sensitive to the demographic and the context of our students and meet everyone's needs. And that might be through various methods of differentiation or small group work or interventions. Um, we, we, we don't teach everybody in front of us in a uniform way. Um, and we would definitely try to meet everyone's needs um, in, in a sensitive and inclusive way. I think that's that for me, Rose is, uh, and, and Catherine, I, I agree with you. I think, Rose, it's, it's kind of important, this idea of inclusion. So I think one of the things you were saying about the way things were taught in the past, I think Catherine's already sort of answered that, that perhaps the problem with that was that there would be certain 
uh, students, certain learners that might be excluded from that, uh, from from actually being successful at school. Um, in if uh, if that way of teaching, if if I can just simplify things a little bit, was continued. So I think one of the challenges we have in education at the moment these days is definitely the awareness of the different needs of individuals in our classes as teachers and uh, in schools, I think. And that may well be, as Catherine said, a, a student who is dyslexic or has some other special educational need. It may be uh, groups of students whose English is not their first language, etc. And I think what makes teaching very challenging uh, at the moment is that need to be able to cater to all of those different groups of students and try to give them the best possible opportunity to succeed uh, at school, I think. And um, I definitely think that that is something that we do a lot better nowadays than, you know, certainly when I was at school, that did that wasn't happening and I probably think back to classmates that I had that were probably excluded and sort of put in a corner and not really given the attention that they required or needed uh, at the time. I understand that. What I'm trying to say is, well, I watched a program once and it was about this teacher and he was basically, because children, some children were absconding and they just didn't really want to, but they had to be in school sort of thing. He was talking to their needs and whatever. But because it wasn't in the curriculum, he was kicked out of the school. Because I suppose, you know what I mean, they have to be at a level sort of, you know, but really he shouldn't have been because he was mm -hmm. at least keeping those kids in school. When they, you know, and sometimes I think these people going round as well promoting schools, you know, I don't think that's a good thing. Look at that teacher that killed herself because, you know, her school was donated as going downhill. I think sometimes that's yeah. wrong as well. Yeah, I think, I think, um, we, we talked earlier, Catherine talked a, a bit about the kind of pressures on teachers, um, at the moment are perhaps leading to a lot of serious problems that, uh, burnout, etc. Don't know, Catherine, if you want to sort of say any more about, about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's happened in the, you know, in the recent situation is absolutely, distressing appalling and you know terrible i don't think that anyone would would deny that and i think that in many ways situations where people feel isolated lead to poor mental health outcomes i think that our system tends to isolate professionals from each other for structural, you know, and practical and, you know, the time factor, you know, and I think that it, we have a bit of a, of a recipe for poor teacher mental health because of workload and high stakes accountability. 
and I do really want to separate separate out the belief that we should have some accountability from this sort of toxic high stakes accountability in the system that as, as it currently is um, I do not advocate a free for all in terms of every individual teacher acting with their conscience but I do advocate a system where we are internally accountable because of our knowledge of what works and what doesn't and how it works or doesn't in our contexts within a supportive framework funded time allowed all of these things um, because I think that that would sort of circumnavigate the, the kind of toxicity that that we currently see well, yeah, yeah. I was just yeah. going to say, it's um, really sort of, as I was saying, I think this where, what they call is, I don't know how to put it, I think this world actually is going mad at the moment, I will be honest. I think there's too much pressure, there's too much sort of, even on teaching. I don't know how much um, school, how much pupils you have in a class now. How much pupils do you have in a class? It depends. It got maybe 32 i'm sure there are places where it's more i'm sure there are places where it's less so are you getting more are you now trying to basically are on strike aren't you well not at the moment, no, not at the moment <laughs> but you will, you've been on strike trying to get more on money. on I, on I, holiday I, at the moment i think <laughs> with the easter I, holidays oh, i yes. believe that education should be properly funded and mm. I think that if you if you don't stand up for it, then this will only continue. And so I do believe that you have to stand up and be counted for that. Yes. Because how yeah. much you how much are you getting now an hour? An hour? Yeah. Oh, crikey! If I was to work out my hourly rate, I'd probably be under the minimum wage. <laughs> I think I think the answer to that, Rose, is definitely not enough. I think for me, for me, um, I. I, I don't work in the UK, so I live in Mexico, and right. and actually, uh, you know, so I have a very different sort of perspective to education. Um, I think to what Catherine has because of uh, my situation, and uh, I'm involved in in the, with teachers who are teaching English principally across the whole of the Americas. So I see lots of different conditions, but even so, I think one of the things that is clear in the Americas and in most places in the world and definitely in the UK, I think, is that the the social value of the teacher, the status of the teacher has been, and this is my personal opinion, under, under you know, teachers are not appreciated for the work that they do. And that doesn't mean that particularly the money that they get, although that is obviously a symptom of, of underappreciation. But I think yeah. education in general, if we look at some other countries, very few countries, I have to say, but education is valued so highly that it's the first thing that a, a, someone who goes to university and comes out with very, very, very high um, uh you know a very high degree or whatever i think their first choice in some countries would be to go into education into the school system the 
the state's tool system and to actually try and make difference and put back into the education what they got out. And I think um, it is the case with some teachers in the UK, but it definitely isn't the case with all teachers uh, and quite a lot of teachers, I think, um, we, we know that there are a lot of teachers leaving the profession in the UK and that there are shortage yeah. of teachers. Um, and partly that's because of some of the things that Catherine, I think, has mentioned about burnout, the stress of actually teaching, the, the lack of rewards, the kind of situation that if you feel that you're, you're trying your best to do a good job, but you have all of this sort of extra stuff and layers and things that you have to do that actually don't have anything to do with teaching, but you need to do that as well. I don't know, Catherine, do you, do you feel, am I kind of being unfair about that or do you feel the same is true? No, I, no, I, I just feel very strongly that, you know, we, we know so much more about our learners. We should be having um, excellent teachers who are research engaged, who are, um, willing to to try new things and adapt their practice but we should also have proper support for um, you know TAs for LSAs for you know learning support assistance for mental health support for um, the resources for students with special educational needs because ultimately if you don't have that supportive framework funded then everybody's just trying to pick up all of the pieces all of the time and nothing can move forward you know I don't you know I don't need I mean everybody would like a pay rise but I'm not here to say this is about my pay this is about systemic underfunding long-term systemic underfunding and what we are seeing is a consequence of that and you know it's going to get worse because the people who are, are very burnt out will leave and new people will not join and it will come down to redundancies and it will come down to not having enough um, learning support assistance and the children's learning will suffer. Um, it, it's got to be prioritised and funded if we're going to see any serious improvement in the long term. Thanks, Catherine. I think I think Rose and also if I can add, um, I think it's definitely it's not just the UK that this type of underfunding in education is happening. I think you see it all across. Uh, certainly, my experience in the Americas, for example, there are um, state school systems where they have a difficulty in finding enough teachers. Um, there are very few countries in the region where I work that actually has have educational systems that have all the, have enough, have sufficient uh, qualified and uh, experienced teachers or some sometimes there are sort of certain gaps that lead to very, very big classes of 60 or above students in a lot of countries and, and places so I think it is something that is a challenge in most parts of the world I think. I mean basically and I've got about what sometimes get what I was going to say did you ever do that <laughs> but um, now it's just gone I was going to say something and it's just gone uh, do you know not, actually not to worry. what it was is now I've just come to you see I think the difficulty as well is in our day, when we were young, we were, had a lot more what I would call family um, 
if you were told not to do stuff, you, you got in trouble for it. I think as time's gone on, parents have been more lapsed in the discipline. And have you ever found that really now schools are having to sometimes discipline kids that haven't, trying to discipline kids that haven't had discipline at home? And that has been find the trouble to sometimes of today because you know it's like they go and run home like if we ran home and said like oh we've done such and such and the teacher told us off and the teacher basically did our parents would say well right you deserved it whereas now kids were more able to answer back and i do think for secondary schools probably it mm. is such a thing because you've got more aggression and more bigger children are bigger as well and you're confronted with a 16-year-old kid that's, you know, quite big. And you, they're sort of, you know what I mean? I think there probably is an element of that. Um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to dismiss it as being something, you know, I think that probably it does go on. I, I think, just to sort of add to what you said, um, I think perhaps... One of the things that has changed that is a shame is that definitely um, to support what you, you said, Rose, when, when I was at school, my parents would not question the teacher. Uh, so in other words, the, or the school system, they had a kind of respect for the school and the teacher that perhaps... I think it may have changed. Um, I don't know what you think, Catherine, that there are certain yeah, parents I, who, are, who are kind of dismissive of, of, of the teacher sometimes and wouldn't support the teacher, would, would rather challenge yeah. the teacher. And I think, very broad brush, but I think there's probably an element of the way that society is changing. We are much more in terms of our, our individual rights. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think that a lot of uh, many parents' relationship with schools probably comes from their own experience of being at school. And they probably are carrying some senses of injustice or unfairness about how their needs weren't met. Mm. Um, so it's it's very easy to judge the way the system is now by your personal experiences of your childhood or of your you know and I just I'm not sure that that's always an accurate reflection of what what currently goes on in schools so um we're coming to the end of the hour and a half so I'm gonna wind things up a bit Rose thank you very very much for joining the discussion it's been great to to hear from you i'm, I'm happy you joined and uh, and said what you you said and asked asked what you asked so thank you very much for that thank you rose and thank you very much catherine for for joining me catherine before i move on to uh to winding things up do you want to say a little bit about what the show that you'll be you'll be doing on teachers talk radio very soon Yes, yeah, so I've got a few things um, sort of lined up and given what I've said about how research engagement is, is so important to me as a way of moving things forward in education, I'm going to be inviting some colleagues um, to, to talk through how they have implemented certain um, 
certain pedagogies into their practice and their experience of being reflective practitioners um and you know i've got some ideas as well about talking to different people about um their innovations and their sort of ed tech enterprises as well so that's hopefully coming up fantastic i'll definitely be tuning into that um hopefully live um if i can't then i'll catch up um, when it's released as a podcast, which of course you can do with all of the Teachers Talk radio shows. So Catherine, I didn't get the chance to um, speak to you about the video conferencing that you mentioned uh, that you were involved in in the early 2000s. I'm going to have to find an opportunity to talk about that because I was involved um, in Uruguay in a video conferencing project that teaches primary school students back okay. uh back since 2012 and in fact we've just celebrated 10 years of it but the fact that your father and you were involved in the early 2000s in video conferencing i'm gonna have to find out more about that because uh, yeah that sounds amazing i'd love to hear more about the technology uh used and and that because back back then i imagine it was very challenging so i'll put that on hold but Excellent. i will definitely find an opportunity uh to to talk to you about that either on your own show or have you back uh, sometime. Yeah, definitely. We'll set that up. That'll be great. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you, everybody who joined us live and who participate in the chat in the studio um, or if you were listening um, elsewhere. And thank you also to everyone who's listening back to this as a recording. And that brings us to the end of today's show. And thank you very much to my special guest, Catherine Taylor, to Rose for joining the discussion, and to everyone else who joined us uh, live. And remember, there are Teachers Talk radio shows all week, including Catherine's very own show. And you can join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.